You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is part two of the story of the murder of Bobby Ryan. Last time we heard about the mysterious disappearance of Bobby Ryan from Tipperary, a quarry worker and part-time DJ known as Mr. Moonlight. He had been in a relationship with a local widow, Mary Larry, and after leaving her house on the 3rd of June 2011, was never seen again. That is, until the discovery of his body on Ms. Larry's land by her brother-in-law, Patrick Quirk. Quirk had leased the land from Ms. Larry, but it would turn out that they had also been having an affair, up until the point that Mary left Patrick for Mr. Ryan. With the questions of land and betrayal, illicit affairs and secrets in a country town, it's no mystery as to why what was dubbed the Tipperary Love Rival Trial captured the attention of nearly everyone here in Ireland for the opening months of 2019. It's an awful tragedy, but a great story, and the main players just didn't seem the sort. Patrick Quirk is a big man, a typical farmer but with a baby face. He wore his flat cap to court daily. He didn't seem the sort to enjoy gambling his earnings on contracts for difference, never mind having an affair with his widowed sister-in-law. And yet, there he was. Quirk's demeanour in the courtroom was contrasted with that of his wife. She made the 200-kilometre round-trip train journey to be with him daily and packed a lunch for him. They were seen walking hand-in-hand during lunch breaks and again in the evening back in the village when they arrived home. It was as if they were trying to send the message to their friends and neighbours that they had nothing to hide. They were carrying on as normal. Imelda seemed to have thought of everything for her husband and was seen handing him bottles of water as required through the thirteen weeks of evidence. Quirk, however, seemed to have little concern for her. He was seen snatching something abruptly from her and once jostled past her through the doorway of the courtroom. There was a contrast to be seen, all right, and one that the public gathering information from the nightly news would not hear about until the trial was completed. Neither would the six men and six women who sat on the jury. The trial opened with the usual guarded descriptions of the areas involved, with maps shown of the townland of Fonagowan, the Lowry land and the clutch of buildings that were next to the runoff tank in the field where Bobby Ryan had lain for a year and a half undiscovered. After that, Mary Lowry took to the stand. She looked strikingly similar to Imelda Quirk, who reporters had watched arrive at the court for a number of days at that point. Slim and pale with reddish hair, she looked drawn and resolute as she sat before the open court. For the prosecution, she recalled her relationships with Patrick Quirk and Bobby Ryan, but the defence team were more searching. Surely, Mary Lowry also had a motive to kill Bobby Ryan. She admitted to Bernard Condon, senior counsel for the defence, that she had initially lied to the guardee about her relationship with Patrick Quirk because she had been ashamed, she said. She said that her late husband, Martin Lowry, and Quirk had been acquaintances only, rather than close friends. This despite the fact that Martin had been Patrick Quirk's best man at his wedding. She answered questions in relation to an alleged incident of assault between herself and Mr. Quirk. Mary had said previously that Patrick had pushed her up against a table in her kitchen during an argument. Mr. Condon put it to her that she couldn't have, after that, thought Quirk was a good man who had her best interests at heart, like she had told the Gardee in statements after the alleged incident. The lead defence barrister said that it must be the case that by that time, Mary had either thought that the assault hadn't happened 
or had lied to the guardie when she described her ex-lover. But Ms. Larry denied both of these scenarios. Senior counsel for the prosecution read out a letter to the court that was written to an agony aunt column in the Sunday Independent, published in February 2011. The letter told the story of a man who had started an affair with a family friend, but that she started seeing someone else. He said he loved his wife but wasn't in love with her, and he was broken-hearted in the wake of their split. Ms. Lowry had recognised the situation from the letter and had confronted Quirk about it. She told the court that he had said he'd no one to turn to or confide in about his situation at the time. Though Quirk's letter to the agony aunt was read to the court, the response was not, and it was cutting. The writer of the letter was told to ditch the self-pity. He was taking no responsibility for what he had done and came across as self-absorbed in the letter. He was told that what he had done was to take advantage of a vulnerable woman, and now that she had moved on, he had no claim to her. He hadn't any claim to begin with, and acted very badly, the agony aunt said. He was the wrongdoer, and now he had a chance to make right. The deceased's man's sister-in-law, Anne Stapleton, had also given a statement to the guardie, which was read into the record for the court. She said that after Bobby Ryan's disappearance, Ms. Lowry rang her, quote-unquote, out of the blue. Mary had asked Anne about fingerprints and whether Gardie would be able to tell if there was a body in the boot of a car or something. Anne had told her that she supposed it would be up to forensics to figure out. Anne told Gardie that she understood this comment in the context of Bobby's van being found abandoned in a wooded area the day he disappeared. In fact, it was Lowry who had discovered the van. When the statement was put to Ms. Lowry on her third day in the witness box, she told the court that she had said nothing to Anne Stapleton about a body in the boot of a car. She recalled speaking to Miss Stapleton, but said that it was highly unlikely that she had mentioned such a thing. Ms. Lowry said that she had been truthful when speaking to the guardie and giving statements to them. She said she had not lied about Mr. Quirk or herself to paint him in a bad light and her in the good. Mr. Condon defending questioned why, when she had initially given statements to the guardie, she had not commented on Mr. Quirk looking, quote, hot, sweaty and bothered, end quote, on the day Bobby went missing. He suggested to her that it was part of her agenda to make Quirk look guilty. She had also said at one point that it was unusual that Quirk was on the farm at half eight the morning Mr. Ryan went missing, but Condon pointed out in another statement made earlier, one of four given in 2011, she stated that Quirk would be coming and going from the fields all the time. It was put to her that in fact she had said that he probably wanted to get some jobs done before he went away on holiday and that she had earlier told the jury that she had been unaware of these holiday plans. Ms. Lowry responded that she was telling the court about events to the best of her memory, but she wasn't able to remember the exact words she had used seven years ago. She denied that she was telling devious lies. Condon also questioned her closely about the conversation she'd had with Bobby's son, Robert, the morning that Mr. Ryan went missing. She agreed that Robert Ryan Jr. had called by her house when Bobby didn't turn up at work or home that morning, but denied telling his son that, quote, we didn't have a fight, end quote, or that she was shaking and crying. She recalled telling Robert that his father had spoken about suicide and throwing himself into the lake, and told him that she should go search areas like that, but she said she didn't recall his response of calling her a liar. Lowry agreed with Condon that one of her sons had a difficulty with their relationship when she started seeing Mr. Ryan, but didn't agree that she had lied when she said that they all enjoyed a good relationship. She denied having been jealous or quote-unquote raging the weekend before Mr. Ryan's disappearance when they'd been on a weekend away together after Bobby had chatted and danced with another woman. The two had been away in Bundoran together. Bobby said he wasn't feeling well and had stayed at the table while Mary had gone off to dance with someone else, but when she came back, she found that Bobby had found someone else to talk to, too. 
She said that her relationship with Patrick Quirk had started in the aftermath of her husband's death. She was on her own with three young children and stated that Patrick Quirk had taken advantage of her vulnerability. She said he tried to take control of everything, and though he said he was trying to help her, she now thought he was only trying to help himself. Condon put it to her that Ms. Larry seemed to have an excellent recall for things to do with Patrick Quirk, but that she seemed to have little to no memory of her own words and actions. Ms. Larry responded, quote, I had suffered under the hands of Patrick Quirk, and I can remember the things that he's done to me, end quote. The court was then adjourned to sit the next day after Mary Larry informed the judge that she was feeling too tired to continue. A break of a further day was granted, and so Ms. Larry's cross-examination resumed on Friday the 1st of February. Larry began by describing a trip she made to the local Garda station in June of 2012. She had a complaint about missing posters that had been put up, looking for information on the whereabouts of Bobby Ryan. She said that the posters were put up around her house and nowhere else, and that they were, to her, intimidating and upsetting for her children. She told the court she felt that her house had been specifically targeted by people putting up the posters, and that this was meant to imply that she had had something to do with Bobby's disappearance, which of course she denied. She was also cross-examined about her relationship with Patrick Quirk after Mr. Ryan's disappearance. She insisted that she didn't remember staying at the high-end exclusive Cliff House Hotel in Waterford with Quirk in September of 2011, even when shown records from her own bank account making a payment and records showing that a twin room had been booked under the name Pat Quirk for that weekend. The booking had been made with Ms. Lowry's email address. She said she hadn't stayed there. In fact, she'd never even been there and couldn't explain the charges. When asked directly by Condon if she was saying Quirk had somehow managed to charge the room to her account without her knowledge, she said stranger things have happened, and said that the defendant had at one point had a key to her home. Larry did, however, admit that the records showing she had stayed in a hotel in Kalini in Dublin after Ryan went missing were accurate. She and Quirk had stayed there together after attending a play in Dublin's Olympia Theatre on a night in January 2012. But, Miss Lowry said, she had been a bit scared of Quirk and didn't really want to be there, so she'd gotten drunk and nothing had happened. Lowry told the court that she'd drank enough that she didn't even remember the play or the rest of the night. They had not rekindled their romance, though, and had simply stayed at the same hotel. Larry was adamant that she and Quirk had not struck up their relationship again after Mr. Ryan's disappearance. The next witness to take the stand was Robert Ryan Jr. He described the morning his father went missing. He was expected at home or at work, but didn't show, and so Robert Jr. called out to Ms. Larry's house. He told the court that his parents had separated in 2005 and that after this, he and his father had gone to live in Cashel. His father had dated a number of women, but Robert Jr. thought that the relationship with Mary Larry was more serious than the others, who, he said, would be very jealous of his father if he paid attention to other women. He described driving to Ms. Larry's home on the morning of his father's disappearance and the conversation that they had there. Robert Jr. said he knew immediately that something was wrong, and it seemed to him that Mary Larry wanted him away from the yard and her house as soon as possible. Next, Michelle Ryan, Bobby's daughter, gave her evidence. She described driving around with Mary Larry the day her father disappeared and discovering the van in the car park at Bansha Woods. Of his relationship with Mary Larry, she told the court that she wasn't fond of the woman and had told her dad to break things off. In fact, she said, she thought that they'd finally broken up after their last trip to Bundoran and the argument that they'd had there. Michelle described Bobby as a brilliant father. He'd confided in her a bit more than her brother and said that Bobby Sr. had been quite depressed in the months following the split from his first wife, but eventually he had recovered and went back to himself. 
She said he never missed a day of work and had a passion for music and dancing. Eddie Quigley, Mary Lowry's brother, told the court that he knew of his sister's relationship with Patrick Quirk. He said he also knew Quirk wasn't happy about Mary's relationship with Bobby Ryan, and Quirk had asked him to talk some sense into her. Quigley said that Quirk had also called his sister a bitch. He told the court how he had been with Mary the day Bobby went missing and confirmed that Mary had rang him the night before. They'd spoken for some eight minutes or so. Mr. Quigley couldn't remember what they spoke about, though, as he and his sister spoke on the phone often. The following week, Gardie gave evidence about their initial search of the land owned by Mary Larry and leased by Patrick Quirk, on which the remains of Bobby Ryan were found. Garda Thomas Neville gave evidence of the various phone calls he had received throughout the case. He was the officer who had taken the initial report of Mr. Ryan being missing at Bansha Garda Station, and the one who took the call that the van had been found. Garda Neville then confirmed that no effort had been made to secure the scenes, either at the farm or in the car park, as at that point it was not a criminal investigation. During the subsequent searches at the Lowry Farm, nothing of evidential value was found on the land or in its outbuildings. Coincidentally, he was also the person Emel de Quirk had rang nearly two years later to say that a body had been found by her husband. The evidence, or more specifically the cross-examination of Garda Sergeant Tom Feenan, proved interesting. He told Mr. Condon, defending, that he had made his initial statement about the search 22 months after it occurred, and had in fact made an updated statement the day before, after overhearing a conversation at the Criminal Courts of Justice coffee shop. It had to do with the location of the body, and sparked his interest because of footage he had seen on the news the night before regarding the location of the tank on the farm. It seemed Sergeant Finan had been under the impression that Mr. Ryan had been found in a silage tank, which was near to empty when they searched, but he had in fact been found at another underground storage tank elsewhere on the land. He had made an updated statement after reviewing aerial photographs of the farm and said that when they had searched the land, there had been a number of round, plastic-covered hay bales in that area at the time. He said that he realised he needed clarification after hearing the conversation, given that the search had occurred over eight years ago, and the conversation had simply refreshed his memory and clarified locations for him. Sergeant Finan insisted that the photograph of the scene had not been shown to him in order to assist him with his evidence or influence him in any way. He denied that his recollection of the hay bales in the area was of some advantage to him. That is, presumably, that the Gardi had missed the tank in their initial searches because the bales were in the way. The same day, statements given by Patrick Quirk to the Gardi on three different occasions before his arrest were read into the record. Two further Garda witnesses gave evidence about the process of gaining access to Mr. Ryan's body once it was found. Garda Connor Ryan had actually been called out to the farm in June 2011 to inspect the slurry tanks on the property, but reported at that time that nothing was found when the tanks were drained. He told the court that he could not recall whether he had asked Patrick Quirk to point out the tanks or slurry tanks on the property, but either way he had not been shown the runoff tank attached to the milking parlour. He had returned to the farm in April of 2013 after the remains of Bobby Ryan had been found. He saw the body in the runoff tank and they looked to be undisturbed to him with no fresh marks in the tank. A vacuum tanker was nearby and was emptying water from the runoff tank. He had been instructed to empty the contents of the tanker onto the ground at the crime scene and didn't think that this instruction was strange. He did not sift through its contents but observed the water as it emptied onto the ground. He could not recall if he was wearing a forensic suit. Chief Inspector Powell recalled on the stand that Mr. Quirk appeared to be quite clean for someone who had apparently 
been working with Slurry the day that Bobby Ryan's remains were found. He noted that Quirk's hands were very clean indeed. On cross, however, Inspector Powell acknowledged that he had taken no notes at the time and had not made a formal statement recalling his observations at the scene for nearly two and a half years after the day itself. Firefighter Bernard O'Brien described to the court how he and nine colleagues had retrieved the remains from the tank, wearing chemical suits. He recalled that no pathologist was present at the time. Then the tape of Mr. Quirk's initial interview at Tipperary Garda Station was played for the court. Mr. Quirk described what he'd been up to that day. He'd been getting water to put in the agitator to spread slurry when he opened the disused runoff tank. That's when he discovered the body. In the taped interview, he recalled ringing Imelda, his wife, in shock and asking her to come to the field. She'd had a look into the tank and then rang her Garda friend, Tom Neville. He said he hadn't known that the body was there when asked by Gardee. He said he didn't know why he hadn't shown Gardee the tank back in 2011, when the slurry tanks had been drained during the search for Bobby Ryan. A forensic entomologist, Dr. John Manlove, gave evidence regarding a single fly larva and photographs of the body that he had been presented with. It was his conclusion that due to the state of the maturity of the larva and the fact that it didn't appear that insect activity had sped up the decomposition process much, if at all, that flies had somehow accessed the tank and therefore the body sometime in the previous two months and up to only two weeks before. This could have been due to the flagstones being moved or he conceded from a hole created by a significant water leak in the milking parlour, which may have created access to the area. The tank itself was effectively sealed by dirt and cow manure that crusted over and sealed the flagstones on the top of the tank, but Quirk had said that there was a bad leak from the water pipe which would have caused the area around the tank to become waterlogged and may have washed away some of the matter sealing the tank. Tests were carried out by a forensic engineer which confirmed that the tank itself was porous and was no longer able to hold water, meaning there would have been no real sign of whether the area had suffered bad flooding. It was possible that if this flooding had occurred, a small hole which would have had to have been a minimum of only 5 millimetres might have opened, allowing access to the cavity below for blowflies. It was also noted by this expert that this tank would have had to have been cleared and emptied over time, as manure and water made their way into it from the parlour floor, and that slurry would build up in it. Either way, all the larvae that Dr. Manlove noted in the pictures, on Mr. Ryan's chest and back, were at the same stage of development, indicating that they were all about 11 days old. Dr. Manlove also stated that it was preferred, generally, that the body be examined in situ and for the scene to be preserved, and agreed that he would have attended the post-mortem if requested. Further, the report he had prepared had not been requested by the Gardee until 2014. A forensic engineer, Michael Riley, was called on to give evidence of the runoff tank and to discuss how material got from the dairy to the tank itself. The tank was used to collect water and manure from the dairy which was cleaned down after milking. The water and effluent would make its way into the tank via a tunnel. Mr. Riley said that anything that had been on the milking parlour floor could have been washed down the drain and into the tank, including miscellaneous items found alongside the body, such as the hair clip and buttons and so on. Items recovered from the tank included bone fragments and a lady's hair clip, and samples of the water in the tank were also taken. Under cross-examination, Garda Jared Canty acknowledged that he had helped gather evidence, but there had been no mention of a clip in his notes. There was no documentation to say what had been in the bag collected as evidence, nor were its contents written on the bag. The items had not been photographed for five and a half years, and he had not made a statement until around the same time. Garda Sharon Langan, a member of the National Crime Scene Unit who had attended the scene, 
told the court how the body was removed from the tank and wrapped before being placed in a bag and brought to the hospital for post-mortem. Tissue samples, bone marrow and hair were preserved. She said it hadn't been possible to leave the body in situ because of health and safety concerns, but told Lorcan Staines defending that that was, of course, the ideal scenario. It wasn't always possible, though. She said that she remembered the slab being lifted from its place, but couldn't recall it breaking apart or pieces of it falling into the pit. Superintendent Patrick O'Callaghan, one of the senior guardy present on the day of Bobby Ryan's discovery, gave evidence on the stand a number of times. He told the court that he had written up his notes about what had occurred on site when he returned to the station periodically throughout the day of the discovery, and that he didn't think it unusual that not all members had taken notes at the crime scene, as he said, otherwise nothing would get done. The defence had been critical of note-taking and photography throughout the investigations, both for the missing persons report and the subsequent murder inquiry. Superintendent O'Callaghan also gave evidence relating to the post-mortem that he had attended in Waterford General Hospital. It had been carried out by Dr. Khalid Jabbar, who has since left the chief state pathologist's office under somewhat of a cloud. He had clashed with Professor Mary Cassidy, and was unable to carry out autopsies in three of the major hospitals due to staff complaints against him, and all of his work had to be reviewed after he left. Needless to say, he was not present to give evidence at this trial, and so Superintendent O'Callaghan stepped in with his notes from the procedure. O'Callaghan told the court that he was unaware of the specifics of why Dr. Jabbar was unavailable to give evidence, but recounted that he had refused to call out to the scene on the day Mr. Ryan's body had been discovered. Instead, members from the Garda Forensic Labs attended the scene and observed as the body was removed and prepared for transport. At the autopsy, Dr. Jabbar had told him that there were multiple injuries apparent on the remains of Mr. Ryan, which were consistent with something like a traffic accident or a serious assault. O'Callaghan also detailed that Mary Larry's house was searched upon the discovery of the body. This was done under the assumption that as the body was recovered unclothed, it was possible he had been moved to the tank. The farm and outbuildings had been looked over at that time also. On the 25th of February, Detective Sergeant John Grant, now retired, gave evidence. He had worked as part of the forensics team that examined Mary Larry's house after the discovery of Bobby Ryan's body. That day, he was the crime scene manager. He said that the team had found traces of blood on Mary Larry's mattress, bed frame and wardrobe, as well as on a light fitting in her living room. He described how they had swabbed certain areas which tested positive for blood and how they had used luminol in other areas to detect blood. The house, he said, was untidy, as were the outhouses, which were impossible to test with luminol as they couldn't achieve the low light required. Nothing of note was found there, or in Mr. Quirk's car, which was also forensically examined. Grant was also present at the scene when Mr. Quirk's body was removed from the water tank, as well as at the post-mortem. He described seeing part of the concrete slab falling back into the tank when it was moved, but said that he hadn't thought that the event was significant. Mr. Grant also confirmed that during the process of moving Mr. Ryan's body from the tank, one of the team members had had a quote-unquote adverse reaction, particularly as during the process, Mr. Ryan's arm had become unattached from the rest of the remains. Welfare services were called in to assist that team member. At the post-mortem, he said that a number of blunt force trauma injuries had been described to him by Dr. Jabbar, who said that death would have occurred within minutes of them being inflicted. Court adjourned that day on the bombshell that DNA evidence had been found in the Lowry house, and the media and public braced themselves to hear dramatic evidence the next day. But it wasn't to be. 
The following day, Dr. Martina McBride from Forensic Science Ireland took to the stand to give evidence in relation to the blood tests and samples that were found in Mary Larry's home and on her property. The sample on the light fixture was in fact not blood, and though DNA was found in the bedroom, it was a small sample, and there was no way to tell if it was blood or some other bodily fluid. She had examined the house thoroughly, including looking at the skirting boards and ceilings. She said that, given the injuries to Mr. Ryan's body that had been described to her, she would have expected wherever he was killed to have had a lot of blood. It had been nearly two years since his disappearance, though, and Larry's house had been cleaned and painted in that time. Even then, she thought that there would be a good chance of finding some blood evidence left over if he had been killed there. And yet, there wasn't anything of note. McBride was also the scientist that confirmed Ryan's identity through DNA from a tooth taken from the remains. She compared that with samples provided by Mr. Ryan's children, and was satisfied that the remains did in fact belong to Bobby Ryan. By Wednesday the 27th of February, Judge Eileen Creedon informed the jury that it was likely that they would be required beyond the eight weeks that they were initially told that the trial would last. They were six weeks in at that point. Evidence then resumed with the testimony of Dr. Ivor Hanrahan, a general practitioner local to Fonagown. He told the court that on the 7th of September 2010, he saw Patrick Quirk, who complained of stress and anxiety and said he was unable to sleep. Mr. Quirk wasn't initially interested in taking medication for the problems he was having, but did agree to speak to a counsellor. In December of that year, the counsellor rang Dr. Hanrahan and asked that he make out a prescription for an antidepressant for Mr. Quirk but Patrick Quirk wasn't getting the effects he desired and spoke to Dr. Hanrahan a number of times over the holiday period, culminating in another visit to the doctor's clinic where Quirk told Dr. Hanrahan about the affair that he had had with his sister-in-law, how it had finished, and how he was upset that Mary Lowry was now seeing someone else. Dr. Hanrahan thought that his patient was suffering from low mood due to his personal circumstances. The court then heard from a number of people who worked with Patrick Quirk around the time that Mr. Ryan went missing, and also around the time that his body had been found. The state hoped to show that Quirk's story that he had been out early the day Mr. Ryan went missing didn't hold up to scrutiny. They called Breda O'Dwyer to give evidence. She worked artificially inseminating cows during the breeding season and serviced farms in the Tipperary area. Quirk's cows were on her route. She told the court that she remembered that there was a diary entry for Quirk's farm on the morning that Mr. Ryan went missing. The diary had since been destroyed, but she had consulted it when initially contacted by the Gardaí and said that she had been there that morning, likely around half past nine, as his was always one of the first farms she called to. That morning, she said Quirk hadn't finished milking and was still in the parlour, which was unusual. She said that by the time she arrived, he usually had the whole place cleaned down and spotless and was on his way to have his breakfast. But she said that wasn't the case that morning. A young farmhand also remembered working that day. He'd helped with the milking and moved bales of hay for Quirk. He recalled having fenced off the concrete slabs covering the runoff tank at Mr. Quirk's request after being told that a calf had been injured after getting his leg caught there. He said he hadn't known that it was a runoff tank beneath the slabs, though. Evidence was also heard from Gary Cunningham, who had begun working with Quirk through his agricultural science course and had been working there for a number of months in the spring of 2013. He told the court he hadn't been aware of the tank that Mr. Ryan's body had been found in, and it had never been mentioned, despite the fact that he and Quirk spoke about which fields would have slurry spread on them in the coming weeks. Another farmer, Emmett Kenny, explained how Patrick Quirk was in the habit of hiring two different contractors to spread slurry on his farm. One of those contractors, Patrick O'Donnell, described the system of tanks used to spread slurry on a farm and those found on Mary Larry's land. 
He said they didn't work as intended, and the kind of tank that Bobby Ryan's body was found in was a common feature in milking parlours of that age. He'd known it was there, but hadn't thought much of it, as they were known to be porous and wouldn't hold the water required to mix with slurry in order to spread. He'd never used it. O'Donnell said he'd been working that farm since before Patrick Quirk took it over and had done the slurry spreading. He said further that in March of 2013, Quirk had asked to borrow a tractor from him, as Ms. Larry would no longer allow Quirk to use hers. The electronics taken from Quirk's home during the search of the 17th of May 2013 were described for the court. During the same search, Garda John Walsh had also found a number of handwritten pages of A4 paper in the office of the home, which had a list of questions written on them. Some of the questions included, quote, Mary last one to see him, question mark. Body naked, either murdered and clothes taken off or never left the house, question mark. Garda Walsh said the words never left house were underlined. The note also contained the question, quote, why did she find his van so quickly? Why did she look for him in a place where she knew he would not have needed to go? It went on to say, quote, V strange, token search, question mark. And why wouldn't she act on leads by traveling salesmen? Why did she give varying accounts of how long he was in yard before he left for work? Two mins? Ten mins? Why was she so adamant of no activity took place in yard? How would she hear? Wasn't always possible. Why did she rip down photos of Bobby after Ryan family put them up? Why was she relieved after crime call? It was a rubbish program and no help to jog anyone's memory. End quote. Detective Maloney of the Document and Handwriting section of the Garda Technical Bureau also told the court about other pieces of paper that were found to have indentation of writing on them, along with sections of visible writing. The paper was examined using an electrostatic detection apparatus, which makes marks on paper that would otherwise not be visible show up. Some of those sections of indentation read, quote, What will the guards know? Murdered, pos in house. Location. Yes, which was circled. We need, dispose, Mary, back. Walk the kids to school. Dispose of clothes slash phone slash any other evidence. Phone pinged. Mary had to see him slash be with him. Body naked, never left the house. And needle in a haystack. There was no way to make out exactly what the words had meant, though, and there were other areas that were completely illegible as they'd been written over a number of times. On the 14th of March, evidence relating to the various phone records was given to the court by telecommunications expert Garda Tony O'Brien. A number of calls and texts to Bobby Ryan's phone in the days around his disappearance were outlined. One in particular was sent by his son Robert at 10.44am on the 3rd of June 2011, asking if Bobby was working that day, but the message was never delivered to Mr. Ryan's phone. By that stage, it was no longer receiving any data. Mary Larry had received a strange text message months after Bobby Ryan went missing. It said, quote, you think you're cool out partying like Bobby never existed. We know you hiding something, and we are going to watch you till you crack, end quote. Her phone records before September 2011 were not available, however, and the source of that message was never found. Garda O'Brien also explained CCTV footage taken from Mary Larry's home the morning Bobby Ryan's body was found. Quirk arrived just after noon in a truck and 40 minutes later, Imelda, his wife, arrived. Phone records showed that Quirk had rang her at 12.33, with the call lasting just eight seconds. Right after that, his phone rang a local vet, and then his voicemail. And after that, he rang his wife another two times. The first Gardie are shown arriving on scene at 20 past one. 
A radiologist, Dr. Anthony Ryan, gave evidence of the results of a scan taken of Mr. Ryan's remains. He was not a forensic radiologist, however, he did have 21 years' experience with CT scans. There were a number of serious fractures to Mr. Ryan's head, face, ribs, and leg, and to him looked like the sort of injuries usually caused by a fall from a height or a road traffic accident. The radiologist said he couldn't rule out that the trauma had been caused by a weapon such as a bat, though. He agreed with defence counsel Lorcan Staines that some of the injuries to the ribs might have been caused by part of the concrete slab falling onto the body during its removal from the runoff tank, but said the other injuries were highly unlikely to have been caused in that manner. On the 27th of March, a forensic anthropologist gave his expert opinion after examining a number of bones presented to him by Gardie from the scene, as well as photographs of the remains. Dr. René Gaper said that while it was possible that concrete from the slab falling onto the body during the recovery may have damaged some of the delicate rib bones, it was unlikely that this was the cause in the case of breaks to Bobby Ryan's leg. He commented that he would have thought it most appropriate for the pathologist to attend the scene in cases such as this, but noted that he was not a crime scene manager and therefore this was not his expertise. Dr. Gebert was followed by Professor Jack Crane, a pathologist from Belfast, who had studied the photographs and the reports prepared by Dr. Jabbar, which he described as confusing in places. Professor Crane said that Mr. Ryan had died from blunt force trauma to the head and that the weapon used would have been linear in shape. He said he didn't think that they were typical of injuries found in car crash victims. The defence asked Professor Crane to confirm that he had not been told of the incident involving the falling concrete, which he did, and said that, had he been made known of it, he would have made further inquiries. Professor Crane was also of the opinion that Bobby Ryan's body had been placed rather than thrown into its position in the runoff tank. He said that he agreed that the body could have been there since Mr. Ryan's disappearance and that the lack of insect activity was consistent with having been sealed in a tank rather than being left in the open air. A further piece of evidence found on Patrick Quirk's computer was then shown to the court. This time it was an audio recording with the voices of Mary Lowry and her boyfriend between 2012 and 2014, Floor Cantillion. Both identified their voices on the recording and confirmed that neither had made the recording or given permission for their voices to be recorded. Mary Lowry was called back to the witness stand to do so, two months after she had appeared initially to tell the court about her affair with her brother-in-law and her relationship with the deceased. Now she was to tell the judge and jury about another relationship too. That wasn't the only audio recovered from the computer though, but it was the only recording that the jury would hear. Two further files were discovered that had been made while Mr. Quirk and Ms. Larry were being intimate. Ms. Larry said that she had not given permission for these to be recorded either, and that she was disgusted when she had heard them. The recordings were deemed inadmissible by the judge after the defence argued that the recordings might suggest to the jury that Mr. Quirk had strange sexual proclivities and that this might prejudice them against him. An IT expert said that a Nokia mobile phone was likely the device used to record in these cases, but there was no explanation offered as to how the recordings were made or how they ended up on the hard drive that belonged to Mr. Quirk. Also deemed inadmissible as it tended to prejudice the defendant beyond its weight as a piece of evidence was a computer search relating to the notorious murderer, Joe O'Reilly. Dr. Michael Curtis was also called to give evidence by Mr. Staines for the defence. He said that he had reviewed Dr. Jabbar's report and findings and said that the pathological evidence in this case was quote-unquote subpar and that he would have called to the scene and enlisted the help of a forensic anthropologist and entomologist to attend at the scene. Curtis was of the opinion that death resulted from blunt force trauma to the head, likely as a result of being hit with a vehicle. 
He said that it was possible that a baton or bash could cause the same kind of injuries. If Mr. Ryan had been involved in an accident with a vehicle, Dr. Curtis said that the car would likely have sustained significant damage to the windscreen or roof. He too had been unaware of the concrete breaking and falling into the tank until only weeks before he gave evidence and agreed with the other professionals that this information should have been available for experts to take into account while they were making their reports. Again, he thought it likely Mr. Ryan had been placed in the tank and agreed that the removal of his clothing indicated some knowledge about the limitations of DNA evidence. Garda Fiona Maguire told the court that she had taken a number of fingerprints from Bobby Ryan's van when it was found abandoned in the car park at the woods. They were from a diary and from a driver's license. The prints didn't match any in the national database. Some matched Michelle Ryan and others remained unidentified. None matched the defendant, Mr. Quirk. Further prints lifted and examined by Detective Garda Ernie Fraser from an aftershave bottle and the driver's door of the van had no matches, including that of the accused. Staines, defending, then called Chief Superintendent Dominic Hayes to give evidence regarding his client's background. Although Mr. Quirk had been charged with burglary in 2012 relating to the incident of having a key to Lowry's house and being caught on CCTV, those charges were dropped at the direction of the DPP when the case came to court. Besides that, he said, Mr. Quirk had never been suspected of any other crime until he was charged with murder. Mr. Staines also took the opportunity to ask the chief superintendent about what he thought was lacking in the original Garda investigation. The late processing of evidence such as fingerprints, the fact that Dr. Khalid Jabbar had not attended the scene, that there weren't photographs taken during the initial search for Mr. Ryan, and that many of the people present at the retrieval of the body had failed to mention that some of the concrete slab had fallen into the tank and on top of the body. Chief Superintendent Hayes said that the investigation was done according to best practice and what was most appropriate in the circumstances. He said he was also quite sure that there had been no damage to the body due to the falling concrete and that the pieces that had fallen into the tank were small. Throughout the trial, the jury were sent home and told that they would not be required again for a number of days. Each time they were given a stern warning by Ms. Justice Eileen Creedon not to speak to anyone about the trial that although the entire country was talking about the trial, they were to deal only with what they had heard within the courtroom. Soon the jury heard evidence from the National Cyber Crime Bureau, who had examined electronics taken from Quirk's home in 2013. They were the ones who had found those Google searches from his desktop computer in December 2012 for terms such as decomposition and the fact that pages relating to this topic had been viewed. There were also a number of YouTube videos with similar themes, but Gardy could not tell if the videos had been watched. Further, around the time that Mr. Ryan's body was found, numerous searches were made for news stories relating to the find, including Bobby Ryan and Mary Larry's name. Mr. Quirk had also requested call logs relating to his mobile phone account, for the first week or so in June 2012, as well as his invoice for June 2011. Mary Lowry's computer had been used to search the terms Bobby Ryan Missing, Bobby Ryan Tipperary, and Trace Ireland Bobby Ryan in the days just before his body had been discovered. The expert said that he could not tell if any of the search terms were auto-completed by Google Predictive Text, only that the cookies recorded what search terms were ultimately entered into the search engine. A former employee of TUSLA, the Irish Social and Children's Services, told the court via video link that she had received a call from Mr. Quirk in February of 2011, alleging that Ms. Larry had left her three children alone 
for long periods over weekends because she had fixated on her new relationship. He told the social worker that Larry had been doing this since the relationship started and that closer family were too scared to bring up the issue with her. When asked if Larry had asked her mother, who lived in the adjoining house, to mind the children, the social worker was told that Mary never had. After this, further Garda interviews with Patrick Quirk were entered into evidence after he was arrested for the alleged harassment of Ms. Larry in January 2014. In these statements, he denied pushing her or hitting her during a heated argument where he'd asked her for compensation after he'd taken on a cow from her that turned out to have BVD, a serious contagious illness in cattle. According to this statement, in the end, they'd agreed that Larry would forgive a €20,000 loan in lieu of compensation for the possible damage to his own herd. Here again, Quirk denied being controlling of Ms. Larry or from profiting from helping her to manage her finances, saying he never got paid for helping her in that way, nor did he expect anything from it. He only helped because he'd been familiar with her finances before Larry's husband's death, and Mary hadn't. But there was a separate arrangement where Ms. Larry had invested in a company and the two had split the profits from that. In this interview, they also discussed Quirk contacting Tuthla regarding Mary and their affair. Quirk had insisted at this point that he had not been trying to take advantage of a vulnerable woman or that he was, quote, getting cash on demand and sex on demand, end quote, from Mary Larry. The final day of testimony returned to witnesses known to those intimately involved in the murder case. One of Mary Lowry's sons, Jack, now 19 years old, gave evidence about his mother's relationship with Bobby Ryan and what he remembered and what he remembered from the time that Mr. Ryan went missing and then when his body was found. He also spoke about a car that Bobby Ryan had gotten for his older brother to learn to drive. It was an old Toyota Corolla and they used it in the fields. The battery was often kept disconnected to stop it going dead. The implication was that perhaps this car had played some sort of role in Mr. Ryan's death. Finally, Rita Lowry, Mary's mother-in-law, had given a deposition in Nina District Court on September 28, 2018. This was read into the record at the Central Criminal Court. She said that she and her husband John had lived in the farmhouse in Fonagown for more than 60 years, and he'd been a dairy farmer too. When Martin and Mary married, they'd built an extension to the house and the couple had lived there. Mary had been devastated when Martin died, and although a number of years later she'd started seeing Bobby, Mary and she remained good friends. She remembered the day that Mr. Ryan's body was found and that Mary had been crying and was very upset. She also told the prosecution that she could recall a morning when one of the boys came into her house to say his mother wasn't home, but that Mary had arrived in shortly after that. And that was the end of testimony in the case. Closing speeches would take up the entirety of the following week as each piece of evidence, or lack thereof, was drawn to the jury's attention once more. Michael Bowman's senior counsel began with his closing speech for the prosecution. He took the jury through the evidence. Mr. Quirk and Mary Lowry had had an affair and she had left him for Bobby Ryan. Ryan disappeared after leaving Ms. Lowry's home and his body was located 22 months later on her property, but on land leased by the defendant. Bowman acknowledged that there was very little forensic evidence in the case, but all of the circumstantial evidence built a strong case which proved, through common sense, he said, that Quirk had killed Ryan. He'd made those internet searches. He'd been obsessed with Larry, even getting into trouble for snooping around her house. The day Ryan's body had been discovered, he was out in the field taking water from a place he knew there was none, and in trousers and a shirt, instead of coveralls. There was no way he was about to spread slurry, 
which was a job he usually had someone do for him anyway. The morning Bobby Ryan had gone missing, he was late with the milking, too. Bowman told the jury that after looking over all the evidence and hearing all the testimony, he was sure that they would agree it was beyond a reasonable doubt that Quirk had murdered Ryan because he was jealous and controlling and that he had orchestrated the finding of Ryan's body 22 months later when it looked as if he was going to lose control over the field that he'd left the body in. But the closing statement given by Bernard Condon, senior counsel for Mr. Quirk, said that there was simply no evidence of what had happened to Mr. Ryan. There was no agreed-upon cause of death. No weapon. No place where the death had occurred. The state, he said, wanted the jury to buy into a theory that they had constructed based on the testimony of Mary Larry, who had every reason to lie. She and Bobby Ryan had even argued the weekend before he disappeared. The investigation had been flawed, things had been missed, and there was simply no way to know what had happened to Mr. Ryan. Google searches from the home computer couldn't be taken as proof of murder nor could scribbled notes on a page. There simply was no way to find Patrick Quirk guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt. And then, in the absence of the jury, Mr. Condon made an application to have the judge direct the jury to find Mr. Quirk not guilty due to insufficient evidence. He said that the state's case was purely circumstantial, that there was no evidence relating to the events leading to the death of Mr. Ryan and that the evidence presented did nothing more than give rise to suspicion. It simply wasn't enough to convict. Michael Bowman, of course, strenuously objected to this. He said that it was a matter for the jury to decide the quality of the witness evidence presented, and said that they had established motive clearly in this case. He cited case law to reinforce his position. Quote, Independent facts, each of them in itself insufficient to prove the main fact, may yet, either by their cumulative weight or, still more, by their connection of one with the other, as links in a chain, prove the principal fact to be established. End quote. Ms. Justice Creedon agreed and said that the jury would decide on what had been presented to them over the previous 14 weeks. With that concluded, Ms. Justice Eileen Creedon informed the jury that they would return the following Tuesday, a full week later, for her summing up and instructions. That day, the judge went through the evidence presented in the prosecution case, which she said was circumstantial, but it had been argued by the state that, taken as a whole, it left no doubt that Mr. Quirk had killed Mr. Ryan. The defence, she said, disagreed with this, and said that there were inconsistencies in Mary Lowry's accounts and no direct evidence that Quirk had killed Ryan. In her instructions, she told the six men and six women that Mr. Quirk enjoyed the presumption of innocence, and that they must convict only if the evidence was beyond a reasonable doubt. They were free to give whatever weight they thought appropriate to witness testimony, and they should not draw any inferences from the fact that Mr. Quirk did not testify on his own behalf. He was entitled to remain silent if he wished, and it was up to the state to prove the case. She said that if they could find another rational explanation for the evidence presented that was consistent with Quirk's innocence, they must acquit him. It was up to them to decide if Quirk had killed Ryan unlawfully and had intended to do so that morning and then the jury retired for the afternoon to begin their deliberations. They requested the transcripts of Quirk's interviews with the guardee and the phone records that had been submitted into evidence. They were sent home for the night just after 4pm, two hours after they first retired. The next morning, they were again confined to continue their discussions. The deliberations continued for a whopping seven days, and all eyes in the country were on courtroom 13 in the criminal courts of justice, awaiting the results of the trial that had preoccupied the nation for over 13 weeks. On the sixth day, the court registrar asked the foreman if a verdict had been reached. He said, quote, Not yet. 
Finally, the jury returned on Wednesday the 1st of May, after deliberating for 20 hours and 39 minutes. They found Patrick Quirk guilty of the murder of Bobby Ryan by a majority verdict of 10 to 2. Patrick Quirk remained still and silent when the verdict was returned, and his wife sat quietly with her head bowed, while the Ryan family hugged and cried. Michelle, Bobby's daughter, read a victim impact statement to the court saying that their lives had been torn apart by the loss of her father, and what had happened to him had totally consumed their lives as a family. She added she hoped her father could now rest in peace, and that he would never be forgotten. Ms. Justice Creedon offered her condolences to them, and then handed down the mandatory life sentence to Mr. Quirk. Quirk was remanded in custody to Mountjoy Prison, where he was kept separate from the general population until he had settled into his new life in prison. He was assigned a work duty in the prison bakery and kitchens, and has thus far been described as a quiet and model prisoner. He stayed in Mountjoy until the end of May when he was transferred to Limerick Prison. It has been decided that he will serve out his sentence there in order to be closer to his family and to accommodate their visiting. Sources in the prison told Ralph Regal reporting for the Irish Independent that Quirk seemed preoccupied with making sure that his farm continued to run smoothly in his absence and had given his family detailed instructions in that regard. Appeal papers were filed on behalf of Mr. Quirk with the court services on the 16th of May 2019, and it will likely be next year before any hearing of substance takes place on the matter. It's not yet known what the basis of his appeal might be. In the wake of the conviction, rumours circulated, citing Garda sources that there was another man involved in the murder, a Polish national who had completed suicide before Gardy could speak to him about the murder. Anya Fitzgerald broke the story in the Limerick Leader, which also reported that Michelle Ryan thought that there was someone else involved and that she was trying to get access to her father's mobile phone records. She said that they would be vital in finding out what had actually happened to her father. However, other sources described as senior Garda spoke to the Independent and said that these rumours were red herrings, possibly started by Patrick Quirk himself, to divert attention away from him. It also emerged that at the time Quirk had been charged with the break-in to Ms. Larry's home, he had also faced charges of assault causing harm, relating to an incident in August of 2012. In addition, a former girlfriend of Bobby Ryan told the Independent that he had told her about a call he received from Quirk, threatening him. She hadn't been able to tell the court about this, as it fell foul of the hearsay rules. Oscar-nominated Irish director Jim Sheridan has said he might be interested in making a film about the murder, and said that he had attended the trial a few times himself, though he added he hadn't tried to contact the family at that time, given what they were going through. Comparisons to the play and film The Field by John B. Keane were made in the weeks after the trial's end, with Keane's son writing an opinion piece on the trial. Mr. Sheridan is reportedly in talks now with the Ryan family and has told the Irish Independent that they are, quote, very keen to do some kind of project, end quote. In the meantime, Mr. Ryan's children have indicated that they will lodge papers with the High Court seeking damages from Patrick Quirk for the distress caused to them by their father's death. If this suit is successful, it's unlikely that Quirk and his family will be able to continue to profit from the farmland in Fonnegawan or the property that they own. But the case that had gripped the nation is an unsatisfying story in its end. We still have no idea what happened to Bobby Ryan on the Lowry land that morning, whether he was hit by a car or beaten, or how he ended up in that runoff tank. Nor do we know for sure what the motive was. Jealousy over Mary Larry, greed over her farm and lands, or both. We do, however, know the man that was responsible. Patrick Quirk. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you heard, 
don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Dominic Stevenson, Amanda Dowd, Binder Dalawal, Tracy O'Neill, Janine Botfield, and Kim Rice. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the world to me. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. This two-part series was made possible by reporting from the courtroom by three journalists in particular, Owen Reynolds, RTE's Vivian Trainer, and Nicola Anderson from the Irish Independent. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. I'm Matt Johnson, boots on the ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the podcast that gives you a unique reporter's point of view from the yellow crime scene tape to the gavel in the courtroom. We paint a picture on True Crime Deadline with murder, mystery, and missing persons cases. My contacts grant you access to those case files with disturbing new details and exclusive interviews. Details might have you thinking, no, that didn't happen. They didn't do that, did they? And then there's the Oprah-inspired, where are they now? Binge these 30-minute Crime Bite episodes where you get your podcasts. Buckle up, investigators. You're on deadline. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. Until next time. (laughs) 